We're at that time of year where thinking about stocking stuffers is a relevant thing to be thinking about. I mean, I'm not, but I'm thinking about you thinking about it. And you know what would make a good stocking stuffer? My new young adult novel, Malraux and the Midnight Organ Fight. It's about murder and what says Christmas more than murder. Look, it's a dark YA book about two teen detectives trying to solve a series of murders one summer in San Francisco. Is your kid dark? Have they stolen all your Bauhaus albums? Do they watch Criminal Minds? Well, then get this for them. What's a better stocking stuffer anyway than a book? Actually, when you think about it, a book is kind of a terrible stocking stuffer. It'd likely stretch it or rip it, so forget it. Just give your teenager my book as a Christmas present. What's in it, you wonder? Well, there's black market organ removal, ninjas in Tom Ford suits, thrash metal, a Russian swinging a cleaver into the night, and most importantly, there's a love story. Malraux and the Midnight Organ Fight is out now. Get it from your indie bookstore. I know you want to hit that Amazon button, but don't. Every time you do, an indie bookstore feels it. And it hurts. Keep indies alive. Sure, they don't have drone delivery service where the book gets placed gently on your nightstand next to a green smoothie and a moist towelette, but you don't need that. You can buy your own books. And chances are you know the names of the people who work in those indie bookstores. The only person you know from Amazon is Jeff Bezos. And believe me, he doesn't know you. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. So all that we've been fighting and since before the flood. Yeah, there's a part of us that's always been at home. of my guest today on the program, David Duchovny. I know you know about him, but let me tell you a little bit about David Duchovny. All right, so David Duchovny is one of those guys who wears many hats, and they all fit. He's a Golden Globe-winning actor, the author of several books, a director, an environmentalist, a producer, and a singer-songwriter. You know him from TV shows like The X-Files and Californication, and movies like California with a K, and things we lost in the fire. But today, we're here to talk about his music. Sonically, Duchovny's work is literate and rootsy, his voice a low rumble that moves through each number with dexterity and finesse. His phrasing and his lyrics bring to mind a thoughtful blend of Springsteen's Circa Human Touch and Lou Reed's New York. It's no surprise, but David Duchovny is a busy guy. He can be seen in the new film The Craft Legacy. He's just wrapped up his fourth book, 
And his new single, Laying on the Tracks, is from his upcoming third solo album. He's a cool guy, and we get pretty deep into it. It was tons of fun to throw it back and forth with David Duchovny. Enjoy this conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. Professor, I am. Would it would it endanger me with the varsity blues operation to ask you to get my son in right now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Does he does he row? <laughs> no, but he's a he's a champion curler. Okay, well he's in. We'll we'll get him in. You know, he doesn't even have to actually do any uh, any curling. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know if he's actually applying to Berkeley, um, uh, I, I, but I love Berkeley. We visited there when my daughter was, uh, was looking at colleges about three, three years ago. And I, I, I wanted to go to, I should have gone to Berkeley graduate school. It was between Yale and Berkeley. I don't want to uh, uh, diss Yale, which was great, but it would have been good for me to get out to the West Coast. I, uh, yeah, I mean... I could have seen you gone the professorial route. I've I've always thought that you were that would have been where you probably would have gone, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> and Berkeley had a great great English department. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's an interesting time though because you send your kid to college, it's like you're kind of just sending them to their li- to the living room because they aren't <laughs> they aren't really going to to the campus. Yeah, you send them to their room. You know, my my son. Well, my daughter's been around. Uh, she's kind of been here and at her mom's and also up in Providence. She's at Brown, but, you know, not on campus. Right. Um, and my son is kind of on a one week on, one week off thing now, um, which seems insane to me. Um, it's like, yeah, you know, we're going to knock your percentages down to 50%, which is still insane. I mean, in terms of numbers, it just doesn't make sense, but that's what they're trying to do. Well, the numbers make no sense because they actually locked it down when the numbers were like a tenth of what they are now. So it's sort of right. how, how do you right. explain that, you know? Right. Um, so I, I don't know what to tell you about that. But uh, what is your level of anxiety uh, on the eve of this election? <laughs> how are you feeling uh, in a general sense? Very high. Um, I, I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm quite positive, you know, that... Biden will will have a landslide uh, popular vote victory. I'm I'm not at all sure that that uh, Trump and and uh, the Republican machinery in certain states won't get involved, and that there won't be there already has been voter suppression and intimidation. So it, it, it's shocking to me that that we're at this place uh, so quickly. Four years, just quick four years that we've devolved to a place that doesn't really resemble the democracy that it was four years ago. Well, and also the idea of taking things like, you know, institutional things like, you know, counting ballots or the mail and, right. And making those look like faulty, faulty um, things is absurd. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, when he first started with fake news uh, four years ago, 
uh, it didn't it didn't uh, affect me one way or the other because it was patently uh, ridiculous. Um, but what he did was he deployed the bias of the media, which is certainly left leaning, and he was able to translate that into uh, a fakeness, which is erroneous. But he was able to take the bias, which I think much of the media will will uh, deny, which I think is a mistake, Yep. because it's clear and, and it's true, and I happen to share it. <clears throat> but if, if the media says, no, we're not biased, uh, then the people that he's saying fake news to are going to go, well, look at that, you know, look at that, you know. It's like the same people that, you know, accuse him of <clears throat> killing 200,000 people now. Um, you can't do that. It's, it's hyperbole. You know, it's like nobody could have shut this thing down to zero. It's just, it's a tragedy, right? I don't know what kind of numbers you can lay at his doorstep, but you can't lay it all there. You know, yeah. and it just, it just kind of muddies the, the discussion, you know, and it, and, it, and it puts the backup of people that want to support him and gives them ammunition when they go, that's, that's patently ridiculous. Like he's not responsible for everybody who died from this disease that he didn't create. I think the scary thing is how easy it was for him to subvert things like the mail or uh, people, people's way of thinking uh, about this. It really wasn't very hard. That's the part that scares me the most. Well, I think that <clears throat> that gets into areas that, you know, people that are our age don't really have a, a, an insight into. It gets into you know, the disinformation campaigns and, and Facebook and, and, and social media that, that I, that I understand, you know, like, uh, a person looking at life on Mars. I mean, I, I can comprehend it. I don't, it, it doesn't hit me in my soul because I didn't grow up in it. I'm not right. fluent. Um, I don't get it ultimately, but I can see, that it happened and I can see that it continues to happen. So I'm, I'm terrified of that as well. I'm terrified of, of, of the loss of kind of objective facts. I'm terrified of the, of the loss of, of any kind of attempt at objectivity or of honesty or even of decency. And it, you just sound like an old fuddy duddy when you talk about shit like that, but yeah, well, guilty. Yeah. I mean, I also think that the speed of the media I mean, when, when you and I were growing up, we would make a mixtape for a girl in real time. Like it would, it would take a really, it would take hours to make that tape. Um, and now it's sort of like, I've made you a playlist or, you know, the news, like, like someone said, Trump survived six Watergates every day. I mean, the speed <laughs> yeah. of stuff I think is really um, rewiring our brains. I mean, do you still listen to albums front to back or have you grown also, have, has your brain changed with the way we take in information and media? Well, you know, this is an interesting discussion because I've had these thoughts and I, I don't think I listen to albums uh, back to back anymore. And I think what happened was, you know, I'll trace it back to, well, for, you said so much there. Let me try and, and address some of this. Um, and I know this isn't what you called to talk to me about, but we'll, we'll, this, we're this is have, how we do it. We have to have this conversation because this is where we're at. Yeah. There's no other way to have a different conversation on, on November 2nd. There's just no other way. I agree. Um, they're like, who gives a fuck about my song? Right? It's like, just <laughs> shut the fuck up. You know, I'm not kidding. It's like, whatever, right? So um, here's, uh, here's, let me try and get back to what you said. Um, the speed. 
Yeah, there's no reflection, right? So uh, there's just action and reaction. And, and uh, you know, all these books that come out, they call them books. Uh, they come out, you know, exposés, whatever, uh, Woodward. Woodward's not a book. It's a, it's a compendium of quotations. Uh, there's no analysis, very little analysis. I mean, at the end, he calls the guy unfit, basically. Big deal. We all know that. Um, there's no... There's no Hofstadter. There's no Howard Howard Zinn. You know, there's no there's no Noam Chomsky who needs 20 years to look back on this thing and figure it out. We're 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 in the middle of it, and there's no profound perspective that we can get to because we can't raise our heads above the water of all these facts that are just drowning us daily. And the fact that Trump uh, somehow has figured out, uh, I guess it took him a lifetime to figure it out, that if you do enough crimes, it's, it's too much. That, that, you, that you actually start, and I'm assuming you're like me, people like me, who look at Trump and see a criminal, and, and you start to enumerate the, the ways in which he breaks laws. Um, he does it with such frequency and impunity that it sounds ridiculous. And I look at his supporters and they go, that's ridiculous. Nobody could get away with that. You must be lying, Mr. Duchovny. You must be making that up. And that's that's the way, that's where we're at. But somehow he figured out like the, the critical mass that you could obtain of your deceit that somehow washed you clean because you go, that's the devil. That doesn't exist. Nobody exists like that. Nobody that bad exists. I've always thought that comparing Trump to Hitler is off the mark. Um, but I also think that people who laugh at him and think he's silly and don't take it seriously is also off the mark. Um, because he's, you know, he's done serious things while while people think he's a buffoon and uh, he's, he's gotten a lot of sort of malevolent work done. I, did, I didn't laugh at, it, at him. Um, I mean, there's the problem with comparing <clears throat> Trump to Hitler is, is, is many manifold, right? But yeah, the, the main difference, I'm sure there are many differences, but uh, Trump at, at heart is an incompetent person and a lazy person. Um, whatever you might say about Hitler, you probably couldn't say those things about him. Um, uh, he, he was competent. Uh, he, was, he was an organizer. He was all those things that enabled him to perpetrate such evil. Uh, it was clear to me <clears throat> that Trump had no, had no real agenda, has no real philosophy, has no real ideology he just has he just has uh trump in his mind uh and i thought well that's clear that's clear it's always been clear which is why i get mad at, at these republicans who are now yeah i'm not going to vote for him again because now i see and i'm like how could you not have seen it i mean it, right. it was it, it, there, there was no there was no moment you know, people are always looking for, a, you know, the moment where you could call Trump a racist, the moment where you can call him a misogynist. The there was no moment. It's always been clear. 
you know, you have the grab him by the pussy stuff. Like, didn't need it. I mean, the guy, look look at him. Look at the way he acts. Look at the way he talks. He's a misogynist. Uh, look at the, the stuff he did with his dad. He, he had racist uh, uh, lending policy or, or, or uh, renting policies. I mean, it's, it's all clear. Um, there's been no revelation. Um, but, but I guess... I guess I've been fooled. I guess he's more competent than I thought he was in terms of, of breaking laws. I guess he's more, what, what he has is an incredible stamina. I'll give him that. He has yeah. an incredible stamina to withstand um, attack. But what about the people who are around him, who are lifetime politicians, who are educated people with good work ethics and have, have put the work in and have not been lazy people, and they are, are still supporting him, even though everything tells them that they shouldn't, um, they're, they're going to go down with the ship, really. I'm surprised more people haven't jumped off, is, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think, I think it is just self-interest, ultimately. I think <clears throat> politics is a little like being uh, an actor on television, in that uh, you want to get picked up, you know? You don't want to get canceled, and... Uh, you have to keep on getting that audience. You have to keep on getting those people to vote for you. They have to be comfortable with you in their living rooms, you know, and that's ultimately what the incumbent always has a great uh, advantage unless he's done something or she's done something horrible. Um, so I, I always saw politicians as kind of being like uh, actors in that way and being weak in that way. And somehow Trump, or not weak, but powerless, you know, powerless in terms of like a popularity contest. And, you know, somehow Trump has been able to exploit that. I mean, here we are, two middle-aged guys. Um, and I think about protest music. For me, it was punk rock. Um, you know, in the 80s, Reagan, his face was always on the covers of punk albums and various forms of, I guess you'd say, defilement. Um, but I mean, that was protest music. And whether it's Dylan or Phil Oaks or Woody Guthrie or, um, you know, the stuff from, from the late 60s, early 70s, Neil Young, um, you know, it goes on. Protest music is something you and I are very familiar with. And I was thinking the other day that I'm not entirely sure that Trump has activated the activist in youth culture. And I, and I thought that would have happened. I mean, maybe it has, and, I, and I'm not seeing it. But like, you know, thinking about your new song and thinking about what you're addressing, I would have thought that a 19-year-old would be railing against that too. I was less in tune with uh, that movement uh, and more, you know, going back to like the the 60s. You know, the I was born in 1960, so <clears throat> I mean, uh, acknowledging kind of the angled protest of the Beatles, which was kind of, you know, uh, more of a consciousness raising venture than any kind of political agenda. Um, like in the eighties, I think more of like, uh, you know, the energy of it, like the anarchistic kind of energy of like the Sex Pistols or the Clash or bands like that. I think that's, you know, way more kind of pointed in terms of its protest than even a song like Ohio by uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, or uh, For What It's Worth, or, you know, 
for what it's worth is a good example because it, it's about a specific day. And yet, I think Stephen Stills who wrote it, he don't, you don't know that. And you, don't, you only know that if you read about the song, you read about the history of the song. So for me, like that's what makes a, a, a song kind of universal and timeless. Is it, even though Ohio is still, I think Ohio is only timeless because it's such a great riff. You know, <laughs> great riff. Yeah, it's just a great riff. So yeah. a great riff, great riff. Um, but for what it's worth, somehow is is more attains like a more universality because it is it is vague. It is uh, like all songs. It probably has its foot in some notion of reality or an event, but takes off from there and doesn't doesn't call it by name. And then, you know, you got bands in the 80s who were way more, way more specific about their protests. Mostly the English bands, I think. I mean, I, like the Ramones, you could say their protest is energetic, but it's not specific, right? The young bands in England really had a, like Thatcher was really um, much more of a, of a target for them than, than Reagan was here. Um, I think that they were really activated by, by Thatcher. I mean, Elvis Costello and the Smiths, they were all, they were all after, after right. Thatcher. You know, and for even the English beat, <laughs> right? <laughs> they were even angry about Thatcher. What right. What is happening to you creatively during a pandemic, during political uh, moments like the one we're in right now? Are you getting more creative, or are you? Do you find that you're bombarded by so much that it's kind of almost paralyzing? Or what What's happening to you? Are you stringing tennis rackets back there? Uh, yeah, I'm a tennis player. You, you caught that. Are you stringing? Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. intense. Are you a player? Yeah, well, I used to play more. I haven't played in the last two or three years, but I, you know, I've gone through periods of my life where I play quite a bit. I'm not that good, but I, you know, I get to the point where I'm decent, and then I usually get hurt. <laughs> that's about what happens. Yeah, I played in college, and I, I still play, and I, so I decided to string my own sticks. So, have you ever read David Foster Wallace on tennis? Yeah, absolutely. The best. He's, he's the best on tennis. The best. Uh, yeah, the best. I don't know that there's anybody else I've ever read on tennis that's uh, it, it, it's, it's really great. You know, it's like, yeah, Joyce Carol Oates on boxing. Yep. You've got, you've got you know, Roger Angel and Khan and, and a lot of baseball stuff because baseball is just kind of evocative in a way that's different from all others. But it's really only David Foster Wallace on tennis that I, that I can think of. I mean, Don Levy had a little bit in one of his books, but but Foster Wallace really his Federer essay or his essay on Tracy Austin. I mean, I don't think he gets any better than that. Um, where, where did he talk about it? There's a great there's a great essay he wrote on a on a guy who's like the 100th player in the country oh, at the time. Michael Joyce essay. Yes. Yeah. Great. It's fantastic. He talks about. Uh, Agassi walking around the court with all the charm of a Port Authority whore. <laughs> yeah, it's one of and my favorite pieces. He has a great line about, I think it's in the Joyce piece where he says, Joyce is, I think he's playing Courier. And he says something, or, or maybe it's describing Courier playing against somebody like Agassi. And he says, you know, it, it shows you what, Courier or Joyce has given, uh, I'm going to fuck it up, but it's like, it, it's just like the destruction of hard work by genius, you know, like, 
like somebody who just grinds and grinds and grinds like Courier or Joyce, and then they come against Agassi or Federer, and it's just doesn't matter how hard you practiced or how hard you you know thought about it and played it's you're just gonna get beat yeah there's nothing you can really do yeah you, you'll be artfully picked apart <laughs> right <laughs> uh once i uh i actually got stoned and i went to play tennis uh with my wife at the time years and years ago and we ended up being on a court next to McEnroe and I had a terrible, uh, terrible bout of insecurity that I was, that I was trying to hit balls next to the greatest tennis player of all time. And I was like, I can't, I can't do it. I, every, everything became like completely self-conscious and stick figure Yeah. And, and by the way, I do think he's the greatest of all time. So we're, we we're <laughs> there. There's nobody uh, better. He'll be happy to hear that. But, uh, what, what was the, uh, the question? You're asking me about like uh, COVID and uh, creativity and, and creativity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, not since COVID hit, like in, in April, have I been very uh, creative. I think what, what's happened is um, I, for me, I can only speak for myself. I think what happened is there's kind of this inundation of, of uh, daily news and, and it works against my own ability to reflect on it and, and, my own art, whatever form that takes, whether it's acting or writing or directing or writing music or writing novels, is based on a certain amount of reflection process. And uh, I feel like that's been uh, taken away from me in a sense the last six months, just because I wake up every day uh, kind of on guard and have to read the lay of the land just to feel safe. And uh, there's no, for me, my process, that doesn't work. It kind of just, uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't enable me to kind of sit down into something like I need to. I mean, if, if Wordsworth talked about, you know, writing being an emotion reflected in tranquility in the preface to the lyrical ballads, that tranquility is just not there right now. No, and, and also there's the, just the, just this weird inundation of, of, of fact and story and scandal that that uh, is part of the Trump presidency, and and then also the the unknown of of, uh, of COVID and um, the fear the fear of that unknown, and um, you know it's 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 really it's it's really a, a difficult time to 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 be human, you know. And I and I think about my kids, and it's I think it's very 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 hard. To, to think about starting your adult life. My son is 18, my daughter's 21, and, and you know, you're looking at, this is where you're supposed to be flying out of the nest, right? So, you know, I just like to stay in the nest for a couple more months. Yeah. In the city where my father died, I find it very hard to hide. So many days gone by, but I live.
apart Everyone plays someone else's part The strangers in their robes Pray for Also, what about the idea of disappearing into other people's art? Like, can you listen to the new Dylan album and 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 be transported by it? Can you 
can you watch a movie that you know and and disappear into that world or do you feel perennially distracted by the pandemic by what's happening politically is it even possible to consume art right now in that sort of with the freedom that we usually consume it or is there just too much going on yeah i don't know i mean personally for me uh, i'm not able to to do that i haven't been able to like put my head around getting into a novel um I've downloaded tons of them on my Kindle thinking, okay, there's something I'm going to read. And then every morning I wake up and I, I hit the New York times icon and then, yeah. and then I'm done. You know? So uh, if, if I had, if I had something like I did, you know, I have a novel coming out in February, but that's done. If I, if I was in the middle of writing, I would be able to do that. That's what I would do. If I had an idea or if I was, if I had to go to set right now, I could do that. I could, and that would probably be healthy. But um, on my own, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's going on in my mind, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But with a new album coming out, a new book coming out, I mean, you obviously have been busy. Uh, yeah. But but now you're sort of in between those projects. And so there's that sort of like that liminal place where you kind of go, I don't know what to do. It is. It's, it's, a, it's a deadly place for me. Um, but uh, I, I do have, you know, other ideas that I'm trying to execute in terms of television shows, uh, even in terms of turning the, the novel that's not out yet into a television series. So there's work to be done, but I do like to be involved in new ideas. So um, we'll see. I just haven't had one that really uh, feels like it's going to sit my ass down and, and make me write it out or figure it out. How critical are you when you're writing, like, for example, a song? Um, do, do you find that the best ones come quickly? Or do you find that if, you, if, you're, if you're really, I talked to Mike Scott of the Waterboys, and he talked about that sort of tinkering with a song for 20 years. And, and for me as a writer, I can't tinker with something for 20 years. I need to yeah. finish it. Um, are you that patient with, your, with the creative process? Or do you really like to find that you can sit down and knock one out and those are the best ones because they have the most fire behind them or immediacy. Well, I, 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 it's, it's less like fire and immediacy to me and more like the, 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 uh, the wholeness of the original vision. Right. So you're talking about really different time frames. So yeah, you could, you, you could possibly write a song in, in, in 15, 20 minutes. Sure. You can't write a novel in 15, 20 minutes. So like the shortest you could write a novel, I suppose, Jack Kerouac, you know, story puts in the typewriter paper and like a toilet roll and writes it out. <clears throat> Maybe th three months. I don't know. Like physically, how, how long would it actually take to write a 450 page novel? Uh, Maybe three months. So th those are speed. Maybe. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So those are very, you know, those are very different states of mind or states of creativity yeah. or, or attempts to sustain that kind of uh, original vision. Uh, so it's, it, it's usually, um, I think, in just in my experience of writing songs and novels, I have to kind of push through for the original vision as much as I can because I'm a very second-guessy kind of editor. Uh, I lose, I lose the confidence. I, I, I like the confidence of the original inspiration and I, and I honor it for better or for worse. I think, you know, you got a better shot at doing that with a song, but you know, sometimes songs have come together where I've 
I've got like a half song that I abandoned and then I have another half song and I kind of put them together and then like it's a whole song. So that can happen too, where, where they kind of, this kind of amalgamation of a song happens. But I, I think I like the original kind of like, you know, that flash, like, and then, then you know, just honor that and, and get to it and then move on. And that's how the Beats did it, right? Like for them, they, their whole idea was like honor, honor that original thing, that fire that got started. That's the most pure part of creativity. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think probably I'm influenced by that. Uh, I think also probably I'm lazy and I'm probably, uh, I probably have an authority problem. And I think editing is really about authority. You know, like somebody coming in and say, hey, that's fantastic. But, you know, if you want other people to like it, we're going to have to do these things. Um, like punctuation or spelling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those, those essentials. Are you are you good at taking a note in terms of you, know, you read a song or um, like you're talking about with with presenting a manuscript? Can you take a, a note, a critical note, or does that take a second? I think I can. I mean, I don't I don't like it. You know, everybody wants to be told when they dump something on somebody's lap. Uh, genius wouldn't change wouldn't change a stroke you know but um you know once i get over my initial uh how dare you <laughs> uh, or you have no idea what i'm trying to do here uh or you have no idea how good that was uh, <laughs> then then uh you know if i'm being honest with myself and i've put myself in the hands of people i trust then I, I eventually will listen. It's very much the same as when I'm acting, you know, like a director will give me a note and this part of me that's like, fuck you. And then, <clears throat> but it has to happen really quick because now I'm, 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 I'm in the scene and I've got to execute these things. So <clears throat> that turnover has to happen where I go, David, shut the fuck up, listen, try to process that, you know, that kind of thing. So there's definitely something in me that, bristles against correction. Uh, I'm not saying that's a bad thing either. In my 50s, fuck you always comes first. <laughs> I think that's okay. <clears throat> yeah? I do. Because I think it shows, it shows a certain kind of innocence and, and, and protectiveness. I think it, I think it shows, uh, it, there's something touching about the fuck you to me. There's something like, I'm sticking up for my baby, you know? Like, you call my baby ugly? That's what it's like. It's like, you just said my, I have an ugly dog, you know, like it's that kind of, it's that kind of a feeling because the, <clears throat> the song or the novel or the performance, it's really, it's your baby. It's young. It's, it's, it hasn't been out in the world yet. You know, it's, it's unprotected. And somebody just said, it's not perfect. And yeah, I'm like, fuck you. It's perfect. <laughs> and now I'll execute the notes. <laughs> right now I'll get to it right because right. I, I realize my baby is young and he can't throw a javelin yet but <laughs> right right you know, you know I've learned to have the, that that conversation also with myself where I can say fuck you to myself when I say you should throw away those 10,000 words well it, well writing is weird writing I think is a form of uh, craziness you know because you, you you're having this you're living an entire life in your head it's coming out your fingers, but you're not really saying anything. You're not really 
involving yourself in other people's lives at the moment. You're just really sitting in space. <laughs> You're sitting in space like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if somebody were to just take away all the machines and just like put you in the air, you'd be floating around the world like this. That looks like a crazy person. And it probably is, right? Yeah. So so I think um I think it is a form of, of, of madness, and, and, but it's madness I really enjoy because, like I said, it gets me to a, a better place of processing. Like this, this next book, for me, it was the best thing that I've done, so I'm, I'm really I'm happy about that. And, and musically, too, I mean, I feel like, you know, I, I get more sophisticated, I guess, as we go along. And, uh, one of the interesting things about music for me has been, you know, being being middle-aged, as you so kindly pointed out, <laughs> uh, you know, like my stance towards acting is 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 a one as a, as a uh, no longer really an apprentice. I'm not going to say like oh, master or I just mean I've done it a lot, and I I know what to expect on a set. I know what I know how movies get made. I know how to talk to actors. I know how to be talked to as an actor. You know, it's like it's no mystery. Every part is going to be a mystery because it's new, but the process is not. And when I started writing songs, it just brought me back to when I first started acting, like in terms of, I got no idea how these things go. And that was super exciting. Um, just to feel that it's not really a tension, but it's like that excitement of like walking into a dark room and having no idea what's going to happen. Like I didn't, I don't really know. I didn't really know a song needed a bridge. I didn't know that. I was like, man, I came up with verses and a chorus. I'm done. You know? Right. Right. How much more do you want from me? That's a lot. <laughs> you know, the, uh, stuff like that. And and uh, when I first started writing uh, songs, I was working with this uh, musician named Keaton Simons, who's a friend of mine. And he said, I really like, because I'd bring him stuff in. And, and mostly I was limited to chords that I knew, or I would write songs around chords that I wanted to get better at playing, like a B7, right? A very beatly chord. It was like, mm, I, I like playing that chord, but it's a hard chord to play, so I'm going to write a song with, with featuring. And I didn't necessarily think about keys, and I didn't think about progressions. I didn't think about one, four, six, seven, all those things, you know? And Keaton said, uh, it's fun working with you on songs because it reminds me of when I first started writing songs, you, you break rules because you don't know the rules. I was like, yeah, I, I certainly don't know them. I, I don't know that I'm breaking them. Uh, but uh, uh, so I, I, I can't take credit for that, but I can, I, I just, I'm just trying to explain to you like my, my state of mind is I, I don't want to follow those rules because I'm new, you know, I'm like new at it. And that was, that was fun. That was fun. That is fun for me. One of the great mysteries of art is think about how many songs that Paul McCartney wrote after writing Blackbird. I mean, you would think at one point you would go, well, I've done it. Right. But <laughs> we, we're artists are kind of like Sisyphus where you become really good at rolling the boulder up the hill, but you're, you're never going to be satisfied. Right. You never go, that movie was perfect. I'm done. I, that song is perfect. That book is perfect. We just keep going. Um, yeah, well, it's a, different, it's a different problem every time. I mean, the Blackbird problem is different from the Hey Jude problem. You know, once you started writing those songs, they, 
<clears throat> they gave you problems that you had to solve. So if you're a genius like those guys, then they solved them beautifully and they became part of our cultural history. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I, I once, uh, I once saw, uh, I, I had, uh, I was talking about Dylan and, and, uh, uh, one of my favorite songs of his is called blind Willie McTell and he never released it. In fact, I, I had it as an epigram in the new book until very recently, but I took it out and, uh, I said, what about blind Willie McTell? You know, I was like, I love that song. He never released it. He said, never got it right. I was like, wow, I think he got it right. <laughs> you know, I feel like he got it right. You know, so, so there's obviously something in his mind about that song that wasn't solved that the rest of us don't really get. So I think, uh, you know, when you're in the midst of writing a song, you have, you have some sense of its completion in your mind that you do or, or do not uh, meet. But a realtor can stop selling houses. An artist can't stop making art. It doesn't seem like to me, like an artist doesn't doesn't say, "Well, I'm this age now. I'm done." I mean, I suppose some do, but um, it's hard to imagine uh, that an artist can sort of just turn off that that valve and 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 block that feeling of wanting to create or be creative. Yeah, I think that it's just that the. Um I guess the stakes differ uh, as you get older or the, the concerns or, or uh, you know, what interests you or the problems that you feel like trying to solve or the inchoate things that you feel that you want to embody somehow bring into the world that you feel are inside you and lacking shape so far. So uh, I think it's, it's, it's more like a, I think the way you describe it is true because I think it's more like a compulsion uh, to, uh, you know, I, I, I did a lot of work, work on Beckett when I was an undergraduate and, and it's like when you read his novels, there's, it's very simple prose and, and it's often kind of like flip-flopping just simple clauses upon each other and these whole paragraphs will go by using the same words and flip-flopping kind of circling back on themselves and and it's and and I feel that way about my own stance to uh, expression or creativity which is every time I just try to get it right you know as it comes out and it, and it it's it's always not right to me uh, it I think it's sometimes more right to somebody else um, than other attempts that I've made, but it's like, I think you're just doomed at a certain point to try and say, you know, here I am, I saw this. <laughs> here I am, I thought this, I felt this. And that's basically all it is. You know, and then some people have magical tools to are able to make those their sense of it universal. Um, but I think, you know, we're all just on this planet and, and we're just all saying, you know, hey, I'm here. <laughs> and, and I mean, and I also, I'm finding that as I'm getting older, I feel like I'm getting better. So to hear you say that too, makes me feel um, that if you, if you put the work in, 
that you you should be better you the you should be a better iteration of yourself as a writer as an actor as a musician on on tuesday than you were on monday um yeah but i think you do run into uh, a certain bias you know uh eventually uh, uh an age bias uh, uh a, a repetition bias because i i, I think <clears throat> I, I don't think that our that our concerns are infinite. You know, I think we, we kind of, we have our concerns as artists and we kind of tackle that problem again and again through different forms. Um, and I think once people kind of figure you out, you know, then they're like, ah, you know, I get, I, I know that guy. I know what, I know what he does. I heard, I heard the black, I heard Blackbird. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's good. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like yeah, there are certain things I'm better at, but there are also certain things that I that I'll that I miss and I'll never get back uh, from being uh, young and uh, and ignorant. Yeah, ignorant of rules for one thing, uh, or uh, the ambition, you know, the ambition to be known, to be heard, very important. Um, gives gives energy, gives a commitment, and. Once you've attained a certain amount of that, you know, <clears throat> where does it come from to continue to want the same thing? Is that madness? Is that really immature and weird? I don't know. I can't answer those questions. But but the swings that we take when we're younger, they're wilder, right? Yeah. And 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 some of them are probably ill-advised. Um, but but they're wilder, and there there's a kind of inhibition. Uh, uh, no, they're 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 sort of uninhibited. Um, yeah. As we get older, the swings are more calculated because we realize I don't want to swing that wild. I'll pull something, or right. There's no point in going that wild because the the returns will be will be diminished. But um, so we're smarter. I think we I think we're smarter as we get older. But I know what you mean. I miss those sort of wild those wild uh, stabs at art from. from yeah. Well, the, the, two two things I want to address what you just said. Um, one, it makes me think of. Uh, like John Ashbery, who <clears throat> he, he had a line, something like the art part, knowing what to leave out. And I think as you get older, you start to leave out a lot more. When I was younger, I wanted to stuff everything in, everything I did. Like every thought I ever had and every, you know, whether it's an acting performance or a poem or a novel, <clears throat> prose, I wanted like everything had to go in there. Every, and now... And there's a certain kind of glory in that chaos and an energy in it. And now I think I, I'm, I'm more, uh, more able to leave shit out of whether it's a performance or, or a novel. And I think that makes me a better artist. I don't know if that makes me more fun to watch or read. I don't know. I can't answer those questions, but <clears throat> certainly my, my art part is better. I had experience of watching some old like uh, X Files uh, a couple of years ago from the first couple of seasons, and I mean honestly, I was watching myself and I was like, no, no, uh, -uh. <laughs> no. But here's two things about that. One is I had no idea, which is so great because. You talk about an editor, you talk about 
killing something before it's strong enough to defend itself. Like if I, if somebody had come to me and told me what I see to be the truth of my performance, I would have been horrified and I might, you know, I might, it might have destroyed me. It might have like made me so self-conscious that I couldn't have gone on. So I was blissfully unaware in my mind, looking back, of how kind of crappy I was. And then secondly, the saving grace that I saw of the performance was that there was a certain kind of lack of self-consciousness about it. You know, there, there was that uh, eagerness. There was an eagerness to it that I really liked. And that was not part of like a crafted art performance, but just part of the person. And uh, I dug it. You know, I was like, I dig that guy. I dig that guy. I don't like his acting, but I dig that guy. And, and, uh, it was a funny experience. Do you think I did a reading a couple of years ago and I, David, I was reading and I was, I was editing as I was reading, I was changing words as I was reading. And I thought, good God, will I ever be satisfied? Um, well, this was on the page. It was oh, already it was on the page. The book was out and I was, I was in a bookstore and I was reading and I was literally adding things and taking shit out. And I was like, God damn it. Am I ever <laughs> going to feel good about this? And I wonder is if it's the artist's torment is to sort of, to never be fully satisfied. Um, I don't know if Dylan ever says, like, oh, Tangled Up in Blue, I nailed that one. I mean, <laughs> I would think you should say that, but so I just wonder if that's the state of the artist is to also be always critical of, of the finished work. Well, no, I, I, I think if I can give a different spin to your neurosis or what you seem to be saying <laughs> is, I would say this, is that rather than looking at it as, oh God, will I never be happy? Or will I never be satisfied? Or will I never stop tinkering? It's the acknowledgement that this is a living, breathing thing and I'm giving a reading or I'm, I'm reading it and I'm responding. And I, now it, it, I'm making it new. It's not, it's, it's just this reading that I'm doing that's different. I'm not going to, go back and like have to, I need to change the, and I need to buy up all the ones that exist out there in the world and burn them and then replace them with, with this new one. You know, it's like, no, these things. And, and I, I feel like I had a discussion with Dylan about it. I don't want to say that I did, but it's possible where he talked about just songs being, you know, living and it's all, they're all, they're, they're not done. The version that you sing today is a version. The, the version that you read out that you were changing, it's a version. It's like you're playing a song live and you change the lead a little bit. It doesn't make it a different song. It's just alive. So I would say no. I would say if, if you ever get to that point where you're like, oh, word perfect, ship it. I would say you got a problem then. Well, it's that, that Morrissey line where he says, has the world changed or have I changed? And I wonder if it's because we're always different too, that, that we respond differently to the stuff <clears throat> that, we, that we created. I mean, it's also possible because you're not in the same creative place that you were five years ago, five days ago, that your response to what you did would naturally. I mean, it's like looking at a photo of yourself and going, why was I wearing that? Well, at the time you liked it. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it goes back to what you were asking about, um, you know, the, the process of 
of writing a song or writing a book or or having or making a performance, um, and it's that uh, and it, uh, of the first impulse. So, to me, I feel like the first impulse is 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 holy almost. It's like, oh my god, I think I got something. I'm gonna just saddle this bad boy up and I'm gonna ride it now, and we're gonna see where we go. Because I've decided, oh. I have an, an idea that could be a novel, or I've decided, oh, I've got a song. There's a song here. It's just starting, but there's here. I'm gonna, and um, then there's that moment later where you're working on the thing, days or months or years later, or hours even. I would say even hours where you're not the same guy. You're just right. not the same, guy. and you're trying. I would say after lunch, I'm a different guy. And so now I go back and I look at what I wrote and yeah, I could rewrite. I could, I could change stuff, but I got to be really careful because somebody else wrote that <laughs> and I don't want to fuck up his thing. Cause he, he was, he had something, you know, he was, he was onto something. He was going somewhere. So it's all fucked up. It's very interesting. I mean, I hope people find this interesting because I've never really talked about it like this. But I think uh, the headline of the interview should be "I'm a different guy after lunch." <laughs> yeah, sure. And, and and when you look at the at the album that you have in the can, right? It's done. Um, yeah. Can you play it back and go, "It's ready," or because it is after lunch, do you go, "I maybe I'll tinker with that one one more time"? Or it's like never. I think it's never ready, but I think I do have a. Um, I have a stance towards the songs where I'm not even I'm not even uh, aware of like a perfection that I can get to with those uh, in terms of recording them. And it's just like to me, it's like it's much like what I just said. It's like very very simple this way. Somebody talks to me about something. Somebody plays me something. Somebody pitches me something. I will say that's a song or that's not a song. That's a novel. It's not a novel. That's a poem. It's not a poem. And that's all, that's all I'm concerned with. Now the level of execution. Yeah, it's important. Sure. But if, if I have a song that I put on the album, all you can be sure of is that I went at some point and said, that's a song, you know, and now I'm going to try it, make it, as listenable as I can to a vague notion of audience out there. Well, I love the new song and I'm excited for the album. And I, I appreciate you taking the time and having it and going deep with me on this, on this. I'm interested in this stuff. I like hearing about process and, you know, the perils and uh, rewards of creativity. Um, but congratulations on the new song. I love it. And uh, let's hope for a new president in 24 hours. What are we going to do if there's not? We're, we're going to, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because with the pandemic we can't really escape I, I don't know I'm not sure um, move to Canada and start curling I really wish that I had, I had bought in Vancouver when I could have but I didn't <laughs> uh, let's, hope, let's hope and uh, let's hope we can undo some of this damage yeah well I hope you'll come back on the show now no, my, my pleasure this was a lot of fun for me
we are all different people after lunch. That is so true. Fun to throw it back and forth with David Duchovny. DavidDuchovnyMusic.com is where you need to go to find out what's happening in David's musical world. His new album will be out in early 2021, and if laying on the tracks is any indication, it's going to be a good one. You can visit me at AlexGreenOnline.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me, editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, leave us a rating, if you'd be so kind, uh, and, uh, and subscribe and tell all your friends and talk about it at parties and uh, bring it up in every conversation you can possibly have, like with your mailman. You know, hey, thanks for the mail. Do you like podcasts? And then just work it into the conversation. You know, (laughs) sorry to give you so much work, but we really do appreciate you spreading the word. Bombshell Radio can be found at bombshellradio.com. I think that's all the business stuff I've got for you. Let's take a longer listen to David Duchovny's new song. This is Lay It on the Tracks. Thank you again for listening to our show week in and week out. And I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. It's a killer.